Uh, For the rest of us, I invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study through this Gospel. Uh, We're looking at chapter 14 this morning, and we're going to be covering verses 43 all the way to 72, a very large portion uh, that we're looking at this morning. And as you're turning there, I I want you to imagine with me in your mind that you are one of the 12 disciples on this night here in the Garden of Gethsemane. For the last three years of your life, you've left everything behind to follow this man, Jesus, who has become your everything, your best friend, the one that you call your master, uh, the one that you have come to recognize as the long-awaited Messiah. But this night in your life has been a very strange night as you've celebrated in secret uh, your Passover meal. And in that meal, Jesus has said some very strange things, saying things like, you all are going to fall away, a warning that one of you is going to betray him. And then he takes bread and wine and he starts saying very weird things about his body and his blood. And then in the middle of the meal, One of your best friends, Judas, just gets up and leaves, and you haven't seen him since. After that meal, you're led into this garden. It's in the middle of the night. You're tired. Jesus seems troubled. He's taken Peter, James, and John away, and you're trying to fight through the sleep. And as you're there in the darkness of night in the garden, you start hearing the sound of footsteps. As the footsteps get closer, you start hearing the sound of clinking metal. As the crowd that you're anticipating is finally before your eyes, you realize that that clinking sound that you hear is actually the weapons that they are carrying. And to your shock and surprise, the one leading the pack is your friend, Judas. What is going to happen next? Mark records for us the most important scenes in all of human history here for us in this account. Now this is a long passage and we don't normally do this, but I thought out of solemnity and honor of what Jesus went through for us in this passage that we might actually stand uh, for the reading of God's word this morning. If you're able to stand, I invite you to do so and follow along with me as we read uh, this passage. Starting in verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. 
and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him, received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at these scenes, we pray that we would behold Jesus in all of his glory and love him more as a result. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're deep into the passion narrative now, the narrative of Christ's suffering, death, and his coming, resurrection. And we have to remember that as Mark is writing his gospel, Mark was not actually one of the 12 disciples. Uh, Mark was actually the cousin of Barnabas, who we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, he was one of the first Christian missionaries to join uh, Paul in his apostolic journeys, uh, people believe that Mark most likely got the content of his gospel straight from Peter. And that is why Peter features so prominently within this account. Uh, we're getting invited in to see the, the things that happened to Jesus on this night through the very eyes of Peter himself to see what he saw. And it's also debated that it could be possible that the, the strange account of the young man who ran away naked in this scene could very well have been Mark himself, and that he himself saw the things that took place that he wrote down here in this uh, account. We are seeing firsthand what people saw 
firsthand. Now, in this scene, there are three different things we see. Jesus is, first of all, betrayed. He is then condemned, and then he is denied. And as we see it, we know that Jesus is being betrayed so that we might be welcomed. Jesus is condemned so that we might be justified, and he is denied so that we might be accepted. And I just want us to walk through these three scenes together. First, his betrayal, then his condemnation, and then his uh, denial. First of all, uh, Mark records for us that Jesus is betrayed. Uh, take a look at verse 43. As, as Mark begins writing this account, he really is doing all he can to kind of try to heap shame upon uh, Judas and his posse here that is coming to take Jesus. If you take a look, it's really kind of overkill. Uh, verse 43, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Uh, when I imagined the scene in my head, for whatever reason, my mind went to the movie Shrek. Uh, if you remember the scene in the beginning of Shrek, when all the townsfolk get their pitchforks and their swords and their torches, and they go by night to try to go get the ogre, Shrek. Or if you don't know Shrek, let's go back even further into Disney, Beauty and the Beast, and the, the townsfolk, let's kill the beast, and they get all their weapons to go and kill the monster. Some of you are like, I've never seen either of those movies. That mean nothing to me. But the great irony is, this crowd is not going to capture some kind of evil, wicked, strong monster. This armed crowd is coming to the meek and mild Jesus, who never threatened anybody, who never showed a bit of serious violence in his life. And it just goes to show how wrong they know they are in this scene, that they are completely gutless. They can't even go at daytime. They're going to go in the secrecy of night to come and capture the meek and, uh, and mild Jesus. And they're armed to the teeth, most likely because they're intimidated. They've seen this Jesus work amazing miracles, and they wonder what just might happen if we try to take him. He's strong enough to do things that we could never expect. Now we see the deviousness of Judas' little secret plan here, this uh, subtle, uh, sneaky plan. In verse 44, he had given this crowd a sign. Uh, he says, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. We have to remember this was happening at nighttime. It would have been hard to distinguish Jesus from his 12 disciples. Judas, who was the one who would have known Jesus best among the crowd, would have been able to di differentiate Jesus from the other 12 in the dark. And so he gets up close, uh, ready to kiss him so that they might seize him. Uh, we just see the absolute searing effect that sin can have on the conscience. Judas is so far gone at this point, he has no sense of decency. He will betray his own master, the one that he has followed for three years, with the most intimate and sacred sign of affection, a kiss. And so he kisses him in verse 45, and in verse 46, the crowd pounces. They lay their hands on him and seize Jesus. Now we have to remember what we said in the beginning. Mark is interested in contrasting Peter's actions with Jesus' actions on this night. 
Most likely, I can just imagine Peter sitting down, you know, across from the coffee table, as it were, with Mark and saying, here's what I did that night, and here are the things that Jesus did. And there's the great contrast as the crowd descends on Jesus. What does Peter do? What does Peter do? Uh, in verse 47, Mark says, one of those who stood by, uh, stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, it's interesting, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, are, they kind of protect the dignity of Peter in this moment by not mentioning which one of the 12 uh, was the one who pulled the sword and struck the servant's ear. But John's gospel, he just throws Peter right under the bus, and he says, yeah, yeah, that was Peter. Uh, Peter's the one. He did that. Notice the great contrast. Peter seeks vengeance in this moment. Jesus, on the other hand, responds with peace, responds by entrusting himself to God. Take a look at Jesus' response to this crowd in verse 48. He lays a little bit of conviction on them. Have you, not come, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. He knows that this is his purpose. He knows that this is why he was sent. He knows that he is the one who is to bear the sins of the world, the one who is to be betrayed, the one who is to be killed for the sin of all mankind. And just as he prayed in Gethsemane, as we looked last week, not my will, but your will be done here again, he says, let the scriptures, let God's plan be fulfilled. I just wonder, as Peter looked back on this night, if he didn't have this night in his mind when he penned his words later in his life, in his first book, in chapter 2, verses 21 and 23, when he shows us the example of Jesus and then says, we must follow in Jesus' example. He writes, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow in his steps. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the midst of this injustice, Jesus trusts his father. What happens in verse 50? As Jesus gives himself essentially over to this crowd, verse 50 says, they, the disciples, all left him and fled. Those who've been with him for so long, who'd never left his side, those who swore their allegiance to him, all gone, leaving him high and dry. Now, we do have to deal with this, these two strange verses in verse 51 and 52 about this naked guy running away. Um, I was tempted this week to just kind of skirt over these verses, but I knew that you all would not let me get away with that. Uh, my wife told me that she would not let me get away with that. So what is going on here? Who was this young man? Why is he fleeing away naked? Uh, many scholars uh, believe that most likely this is actually Mark himself. Uh, that Mark happened to be there following Jesus on this night and was himself seized by the crowd that had captured Jesus. He was wearing a linen cloth. He's able to get away by kind of removing himself from his clothes and being able to get away naked. Uh, 
Uh, that, that very well could be. I don't know that there is definite evidence that it was Mark. But I do like the idea uh, of one of the commentators. He says he thinks that Mark leaves this young man unidentified so that we, as the readers, can kind of put ourselves in the young man's place as an observer from afar of what Jesus is going through in this moment. And it's essentially for us maybe to ask ourselves, would we have done any different than the disciples? Or would we too, like this young man, flee to save our own lives? In fact, there's a little bit of an allusion to an Old Testament prophetic verse in the book of Amos going on here. In the book of Amos, when God is speaking about his judgment coming down upon man, this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 16. On that day when God's judgment will come, he said, he who is brave-hearted among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. In other words, even those who are the most strong in their faith, most confident and steadfast in the Lord, will be so reduced to utter fear in that moment that they will even leave their own clothes behind to save their lives. I wonder if Mark thought about that verse as he recorded these two verses. So now Jesus is alone, utterly betrayed, no one to go with him on this journey. And of course, it must be this way. Only the Son of God could stand in this place to take on the sins of all the world. As we see him being betrayed, we are reminded that he is being betrayed so that we might be welcomed by God. But scene two, scene two goes from his betrayal to his condemnation. Jesus is condemned. If you take a look at verse 53, we're introduced to kind of a, a kangaroo court. They lead Jesus to the high priest. And to our surprise, uh, it is the most honorable and esteemed and respected men among all the Jewish nation who make up this kangaroo court. All the chief priests, all the elders and the scribes come together to try Jesus. Now, there are so many things wrong with this trial in particular. Uh, in particular, uh, the, the Sanhedrin law, law for the Sanhedrin, was that any trial that was to take place was not to take place during night. So that's strike one. Strike two, all court hearings were only to happen within the temple chambers, they're having this trial out in the courtyard, strike two. Strike three, no capital offenses were to be determined and heard and tried during Passover week. This is Passover week, strike three. But that's just Sanhedrin law. What about God's absolute authoritative law in the Old Testament? Even there, they are breaking all sorts of God's commandments in that any judicial hearing should be done without partiality, there were to be no false witnesses, and uh, there was only uh, to be, um, uh, all evidence was to be tried on the evidence of two or three witnesses who agreed with one another. And what happens in this scene, if you take a look at this uh, verse 55, they can't come up with a single person who agrees uh, with what Jesus has done. Chief priests, the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
Verse 56, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Uh, On and on it goes, verse 59, uh, even about a certain particular thing he said about the temple, even about this, their testimony does not agree. It's an absolute mess of a court case. So in the midst of all that chaos, in verse 60, the high priest stands up and asks Jesus directly to give a defense about all that is said against him. Have you no answer to make, he says. What is it that these men testify against you? How does Jesus reply? Silence. Verse 61, he remained silent, made no answer. He will not dignify their foolishness with an answer. And surely there is an echo here of Isaiah 53, isn't there? As Isaiah prophesied about Jesus that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the chief priests asked him again, this time the million-dollar question, verse 61, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This is the question that, depending on Jesus' answer, will determine his fate. Up to this point, as we've traced through Mark's gospel, Jesus has been pretty uh, serious about keeping his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God under wraps. Uh, when, When he has performed miracles, what has he told to the people that he has performed them for? Don't tell anyone. Now here is the great moment as his hour has come. What will he say to this great question? In a court of liars, Jesus will be the one to bravely tell the truth. In verse 62, Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Everyone in the court that day, being chief priests and scribes and elders, steeped in the Old Testament, would have known exactly what it was that Jesus was saying and what he was referring to. He was claiming to be the one that Daniel prophesied about as the great Savior and Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. Daniel gets this great prophetic vision of the Son of Man, the the Son of God, the Messiah, and he says, with the clouds of heaven came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples should serve him. Jesus is asked, are you the Son of God? Jesus says, I am that man. I am the one who is, given, is being given a kingdom who will have all dominion. You may be judging me tonight, but I will be the final judge at, all, at the end of all time. Now, in this scene, I think there are two things. I think there's a consideration and there's a warning. A consideration and a warning. First, a consideration for those of you here this morning who may actually be wrestling with the identity of Jesus. 
Uh, there may be some of you here this morning who you, you, you're, you're wrestling with Christianity. You don't know uh, whether it's all true. You're wondering uh, whether it really could be as the Bible records it. Uh, perhaps you admire Jesus, you, you love him for his teaching and his uh, example of love and peace, but when it comes to him being the son of God and the savior of all the world, you struggle a little bit. I think this is a good passage for you to wrestle with because if Jesus was in fact lying about being the Lord of all the universe, about being the only savior of mankind, about being divine himself as the son of God, if he was lying, why would he carry his lie all the way to this point of putting himself in the place where he knows he could very well be murdered for carrying this lie through. I was talking to a gentleman this week. He's in that very boat where he's struggling with Jesus and he's just not sure. And uh, it brought to mind what C.S. Lewis famously said. It said all the time. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus has only given us three options. Either he is exactly who he says he is as Lord, or he's a liar, or he's an absolute lunatic thinking somehow by some great mental illness that he was actually divine. He leaves us no other options. Either he is who he is, or he is not, and we can dismiss him and chuck him. But I think this moment right here is one that we all must wrestle with. Why would a liar bring himself to this point? See, Mark is trying to help us see that Jesus is willingly embracing condemnation, willingly being condemned unjustly, so that our just condemnation before God might be placed upon him, that our sin might be transferred to him so that we might be saved and redeemed and forgiven and reconciled to God. Either he is the means of us escaping our condemnation or he is not. But I said also that there's a warning. I think that there is a warning for all of us in the church who are in spiritual authority of what can happen when spiritual authorities place themselves above the authority of Jesus. Because take a look at verse 65. After they condemn him deserving death, these men of high esteem, these men who are well-educated, these men who are, are respected, these men who, who gave their lives to the ministry of people, end up becoming like animals. In verse 65, what do they do? They begin spitting on Jesus, they cover his face, and they punch him. And they begin to mock him, saying, oh, prophesy, prophesy, son of God. And then the guards take him and beat him up as well. Isn't it the case when spiritual leadership gets a little up on their high horse, puts themselves in the place of Lord, puts themselves above the authority of Jesus, that all sorts of spiritual abuse starts to take place. We must keep ourselves under the lordship of Jesus. Here we see Jesus is condemned so that we might be justified.
But lastly, we see Mark records for us scene three, Jesus is denied. He is denied. Behind the scenes of this trial is Peter. Uh, Peter, to his credit, is the only one of the 12 who actually followed Jesus to his trial. And it seems that he actually was bold enough to, to get quite close to Jesus. If you look back to verse 54, back to verse 54, Mark is careful to say Peter had followed him at a distance right into the court of the high priest. So he, he's, he's staying at a distance, but he's also kind of close. But as the violence ensues, as Jesus is condemned by verse 66, we see that Peter's actually making the distance greater and greater, stepping away, trying to save himself from potential harm. Uh, three denials take place. First, the girl asking, uh, aren't you one of the people who followed Jesus? He denies it. The rooster crows. Then the servant girls let the bystanders know, hey, I think this one is one of the guys that followed Jesus around. Again, he denies it. And then the bystanders themselves, as the threat begins to get greater and greater for Peter, ask him. Peter gets to the point where he actually uh, invokes a curse on himself, swears, probably taking God's name in vain in verse 71, and swears, I do not know this man of whom you speak. What happens next? Verse 72, the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, remember the rooster, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept, realizing what he had done. Once again, see the contrast between Peter and Jesus. In this trial, Jesus is the rock who will stand immovable, who will stand steadfast, who will tell the truth, who will put himself on the line. Peter is the rock who proves to crumble. A reminder to us that the strongest disciple, the most confident disciple, his only hope is not in himself but in the steadfast, immovable faithfulness of Jesus. All of our confident assertions, just like Peter, will never fall away. I would never do that. And then don't we find ourselves in the very same boat as Peter, denying Jesus left and right. As we wrap this up and, and we think about applying, I thought in my mind this week, I wonder how the first readers of Mark's gospel read this and thought about these scenes. Because if you remember all the way back to 2022, when we began this sermon series, I'm sure you all remember that, we reminded ourselves that Peter is writing his gospel to Christians who were living in the city of Rome under persecution who would have walked through the streets of Rome at night and seen their brothers and sisters in Christ being bodies burning to light up the city streets as the city street lamps. Most likely, they would have actually read this gospel in hiding, in a secret place, so that they couldn't be detected. And I just wonder, as they looked at the example of one of their heroes, Peter the Apostle, having a weak moment and denying Jesus not just once, not just twice, but three times, 
I wonder if they saw themselves in Peter as they lived kind of on the outskirts of a society that was against all that uh, Jesus stands for, against the exclusivity and lordship of Jesus. And I wonder if they, if, as they moved through society and people asked them, you're not one of those Jesus people, are you? I wonder if Peter's example caused them to pause and say, now just how am I going to respond when my moment comes, when I'm asked, when I'm given the opportunity to either confess the faith or to deny it? And I wonder if they, if they were struck by that. And that takes us to our own day as readers of Mark's gospel in 2024 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, when our friends, our family, our coworkers say, you're not one of those Jesus people, are you? I wonder what we're going to be prepared to say. See, just like Peter, it is our failures that should rightly reduce us to humility before Jesus, to, to remind ourselves that we are not the disciples that we should be. Far too often, like Peter, we fall away, we deny uh, in those moments of sin, uh, where we deny Jesus in our heart or to our shame in those moments where we should stand up and be bold. We have opportunities to be representatives of him and yet subtly we deny him by keeping our mouths shut. It's our failures that should rightly reduce us to humility. But what helps us to get back up on our feet again and to keep on keeping on as a disciple of Jesus? In light of our failures we see the faithfulness of Jesus in these scenes. That though all of the disciples fled and denied and abandoned him, he kept going out of mercy and grace and love. He put himself in our place, stood condemned for us so that we might receive salvation that we might be reconciled. It is his faithfulness that strengthens us to stand up and to keep going. I wonder if Peter had his denials in mind when he wrote again in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 to us, saying about the outside world, about those who would condemn us for our faith, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Knowing all that Jesus endured for our sake, betrayed that we might be welcomed, condemned that we might be justified, uh, denied so that we might be accepted. It's now our turn to stand in great gratitude and in strength, knowing that he has done the work needed for us to be right with God, to say, I will make a defense. Because there are those out there who need to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for their sake so that they too could be welcomed. They too could be justified. They too could be accepted. Jesus' words stand here as we look at his example Take up your cross, he says. Deny yourself and follow me. We stand firm, making the good confession 
He is Christ. He is Lord. There is salvation found in no other name but him. Let's pray.